This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Well, <clears throat> thank you, David, and thank you for, for uh, coming. The title of my talk is Jonathan Edwards, The Holy Spirit, and Shavuot. I've spent most of my career on Jonathan Edwards. Um, I've done a bunch of books on Edwards, a whole bunch of articles on Edwards. I, I'm also an Anglican theologian, and I've written books on theology of world religions. That's something else I'm interested in. And more recently, I've, I've written a couple books and a bunch of articles on the theology of Israel, what, 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 um, what Israel means theologically. And, and uh, David has helped me with some of those uh, over the years. But tonight is Jonathan Edwards. And let me tell you something about Jonathan Edwards. Most people only know him from his famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Raise your hand if you've read it or heard of it. Uh, it's been called the worst, well, it's been called the best sermon in American history and also the worst sermon in American history. Uh, and, and, and so Edwards is typically known only as a hellfire and damnation preacher. Now, Edwards was a hellfire and damnation preacher, but he was also a profound theologian. And even people who hate Edwards, who know the history of theology and the history of American religious thought, concede that Edwards was the greatest religious thinker in the history of the Americas. Nobody comes close. Nobody comes close. Uh, Yale University Press just recently finished the critical edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards, 73 volumes, four to 800 pages each. Now, he was a philosopher. He, in fact, was the greatest American philosopher until the turn of the 20th century with the great flowering of American um, philosophy with, 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 with Peirce and William James and Santayana. But he was also the greatest American theologian. In fact, the Lutheran theologian, Robert Jensen, published a book 25 years ago called America's Theologian because he was. Nobody comes close to his stature as a theologian in the history of America. But I would argue, and there, there are a few who agree with me, that in the history of Christian thought, in the history of Christian theology, generally, he's in the top five. Now, why do I say that? Because he, more than anyone else in the history of Christian thought, was all about the beauty of God. Patrick Sherry published a book 20 years ago with Clarendon Press. It's an off print of Oxford, titled Spirit and Beauty, A History of Theological Aesthetics. And you know, aesthetics is the study of beauty. And he said there's only three names in the history of Christian thought on aesthetics. There's Augustine, there's the 20th century Swiss theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian. And he said of the three, the one for whom beauty was the most central to his vision of God was Jonathan Edwards, even more than Augustine and more than von Balthasar. So Edwards, <clears throat> I would say, in the, is in the top five of all Christian theologians. He's up there with Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Luther, Calvin. 
Now, he's important for Anglicans in Jerusalem. Now, how many of you are Anglican? Okay, about four of you. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Anglicans, uh, some of us Anglicans, like, like to say that we are neither Protestant nor Catholic, that, that we draw the best of the Catholic worship tradition, draw, draw from it in our liturgy, and also the best of the Protestant preaching tradition. Uh, and Edwards was a bridge between Protestants and Catholics in many ways. And one way is his view of justification by faith, which all Protestants say is what theology is all about. And Lutherans especially say that. But Edwards' view of justification, as I argued in one of my books, is, is like Tom Wright's view of justification, which is closer to that of Thomas, to, to, to Thomas Aquinas than to typically Lutheran and even evangelical views of justification. And much more Jewish, by the way. Uh, also, uh, you know, Protestants pride themselves on being sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our final authority, rather than tradition. But Edwards was not sola scriptura in the way that most Protestants and most evangelicals are, where it's just me and the Bible and Jesus. No, Edwards said we have to read the Bible at the feet of the great tradition. And if we don't read the Bible at the feet of the great tradition, we will necessarily fall into heresy. And that's much more of a Catholic view than a classical Protestant view. Now, Edwards was a Protestant. He clearly rejected Rome on the papacy. He rejected the authority of the papacy. He rejected the excessive Mariology of Rome. So he wasn't a Roman Catholic, but his theology structurally in many ways was uh, as much Catholic as it was Protestant. Therefore, he was a bridge, and, and he continues to serve today as a bridge between uh, Protestants and Catholics, and, and also as a bridge between liberals and conservatives. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is the only theologian taken seriously at both Wheaton College Graduate School and Harvard Divinity School. Edwards was also a Christian Zionist. Uh, I did a whole chapter with that title, Jonathan Edwards, Christian Zionist, in a book of Edwards' essays that came out recently. He said, and he was writing in the 18th century, and you know, for those of you who don't know, his dates are 1703 to 58. He died at, the, at his intellectual prime at the tender, young, young age of only 54. And I know some of you agree that's a very young age and undeveloped. Um, he said back in the 1740s and the 1750s when Jerusalem was under the control of Muslims in the Ottoman Empire, he said someday the Jews will return to the land. And one day Jerusalem will once again be the center of the world. Um, he said, the church did not begin at Pentecost in the first century. The church began in Eden. And he spoke about all the years of Old Testament Judaism as the Jewish church. The Jewish church. Um, he said, Pentecost was a revival. 
And all of human history is moved by revivals. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, he said, when the Jews returned to the land, and he was certain it was going to happen in the future, although writing in the 1740s and 50s, it looked like absolutely impossible. But he said, when the Jews return to the land, that will be part of a last great series of revival spreading across the world for Orthodox Christianity. At the same time, there will be massive persecutions of Christians across the world. Now, a lot of contemporary observers of religion today would say both those things are going on. There's a massive revival of Christianity going on in the global south, and there's a massive persecution of Christians going on like almost never before in the history of Christianity in terms of numbers in Muslim countries and in places like China and Nigeria today. Now, on the Holy Spirit, Edwards was a theologian of the Holy Spirit, um, like very few others in the history of, of Christian thought. Uh, he said, history moves by the Holy Spirit who inspires revivals. And it's revivals that move history, move human history. Uh, in fact, Jonathan Edwards was a theologian of revival. Uh, more than anyone else in the history of Christian thought. So not only on beauty, but also on revival and what that means. And that's why Jonathan Edwards is being studied massively in South Africa by black theologians and black pastors, South African pastors, because they want revival and they know that Edwards is the theologian of revival. He wrote whole books on theology of revival, but they also know that he was this profound mind and they are mostly Pentecostals, these, these, these South African Pentecostal preachers, and they've had all the emotional thing, and they had the revivals, but they know they need something much more. They, they need the life of the mind, and Edwards combines this beautiful mind with a heart for God, like almost no one else in the history of Christian thought, except people like Augustine, and you could say Martin Luther. So, so Edwards said that you see revivals in Old Testament history, like the revival under Joshua, the new generation that came into the land and settled the land under Joshua and, and renewed the covenant under Joshua. That was a religious revival, he says. Uh, when Ezra resettled the country, returning from exile, and renew the covenant. That was a revival that God sent that moved the history of redemption forward. The first century early church centered here in Jerusalem. That was a revival. The rise of the early Christian church was a revival that we all know changed the course of history. Then the Reformation, he said, was another revival that God started in Germany and elsewhere that change the history of modern Europe. I mean, there wouldn't be a modern Europe without the Reformation. Now, I, I am certain that if Edwards were in the 20th century, he, he, he would say in the 21st century that 1948, the establishment of the State of Israel was, was, was part of a revival that came out of the massive ingathering of Jews from all over the world starting in the mid-19th century to this land here. 
And then 1967, when, uh, when all of Jerusalem was finally under the control of Jews, after more than 2,000 years of not being under control of Jews, of being trampled down by the Gentiles. And you know, somebody famous predicted once that Jerusalem would be trampled down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles would come to an end. And, and you know who that somebody famous was? Yes, Jesus. So Jesus predicted 2,000 years, roughly 2,000 years before it happened, that at some point in the future, Jerusalem would cease to be trampled down by the Gentiles. And that finally took place in 1967 when East um, Jerusalem was, was, was um, um, finally reconquered and recontrolled by Jews. Um, and Edwards would say, I'm, I'm certain of it if he were living today, that, th that the modern Messianic Jewish movement that really started in big numbers in the 1960s, same decade as 1967, was, was a, um, is another one of these massive revivals that God uses to move the history of redemption forward. Now, so, so all these revivals are sent and led and propelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Edward said that, now he was writing in the 18th century, and he was saying previous Protestant theology, so, so the Protestants started in the 16th century with Luther and Calvin and, and uh, Zwingli uh, and Thomas Cranmer and, and uh, uh, Richard Hooker, um, you know, Cranmer was the Anglican liturgist and Hooker was the principal uh, Anglican theologian of the 16th century English Reformation. But Edward said in the 18th century that previous Protestant theology has not given the Holy Spirit his due. Now, he had a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, and I will just mention a few of them. He said the Holy Spirit, because he's one of the three persons of God, is infinite. And so the aspects of the Holy Spirit, the number of aspects of the Holy Spirit, dimensions, ways in which we experience and see and understand the Holy Spirit, is also infinite. And here's just a few. All the good that we have as Christians is because we are in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in us. The love of God poured into the, our hearts that Romans, Paul talks about in Romans 5 uh, is the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who unites us with the Father and with the Son. In fact, the Holy Spirit is what gives the Father the Father's love. The Holy Spirit is, is what gives the Son his love. The Father has love because he is one with the Holy Spirit who is love. The Son has love because he is one with the Holy Spirit who is love. The Holy Spirit is what Christ purchased in his atonement. Uh, among other things, the atonement of Christ on the cross was a payment to purchase something. And the something that Christ purchased by his atonement on the cross was, was the person of the Holy Spirit for, his, uh, for Christ's followers. So, so to be saved, to be redeemed, 
is to be given the gift of a divine person, of one of the three in the Trinity, which means the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, according to Edwards, is the goal of the work of the Father and the Son in the infinite in their infinite work of redemption. The Holy Spirit is beauty as well as being love. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus the most beautiful thing in the universe. The Holy Spirit is a new principle in a person. The Holy Spirit is actually the quality of a person. So when you meet another Christian for the first time and you either sense before you met him or her or in the process of your talking with him or her, you recognize there's something that just glows about this person. There's something that's beautiful about that person. It's because that person has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also, and Edwards is Augustinian, and he gets this from the Augustinian tradition, going back to St. Augustine. And St. Augustine famously taught that the Holy Spirit is the mutual love between the Father and the Son. The Father infinitely loves the Son and always has. There never was a time when the Father did not love the Son infinitely. The Son infinitely loves the Father and always has. There never was a time when the Son did not love the Father. And the love between the Father and the Son is so perfect that it's a person. It's another divine person. Now that's what, that's, you know, uh, that's what Augustine taught in his famous work, De Trinitate, on the Trinity. And it's what Edwards taught uh, um, as a disciple of the long Augustinian uh, tradition. And the Holy Spirit is what joins you and me to Jesus. We have Jesus because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the glue that attaches us to the Son of God. And you know, the way we get to the Father is through the Son, and, and the way we get attached to the Son is by the glue, as it were. Now I'm just using a crude uh, human word. The glue of the Holy Spirit that attaches us to the Son so that we can go before the throne of the Father and be heard by the Father because it's the Holy Spirit who puts us into the Son of God whose righteousness covers us and then brings us up to the throne of the Father where the Father hears us and we can experience the Father's love then. Now, Edwards also said that all these times that we Christians talk about grace and all the times that the New Testament talks about grace, uh, about grace. And the Old Testament, of course, grace is a Jewish concept. Grace is really the person of the Holy Spirit. Grace is the direct and, and immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. So grace, according to Edwards, is not pardon, but a person. I mean, we evangelicals typically think of grace being forgiveness. You know, we are forgiven by God because of the work of Jesus Christ, and, and, and that's grace. But Edward says the grace is simply the person of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the possession of the Holy Spirit is infinitely better than charismatic gifts, according to Edwards. It's important to say this in his understanding. Uh, he knew about charismatic gifts, and, and he wrote quite a bit about charismatic gifts, 
And, but he said the indwelling possession, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is infinitely better than having any charismatic gift. And in, and, and in fact, sometimes these two things are very distinct, uh, having the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and having charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. That is, some who, exor- who have and exercise charismatic gifts don't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, how can that be? How can you exercise a gift of prophecy and not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, Edward said, look at Balaam, the false prophet in the book of Numbers, whom the New Testament also excoriates as being a wicked, wicked man. And yet Balaam was given true prophecy by the Holy Spirit. And Edward said, Look at King Saul in the Old Testament, on whom the Holy Spirit came down twice, and he had religious ecstasy and prophesied, lying on the ground and writhing on the ground twice, we're told in the Old Testament. And yet the Old Testament makes makes clear, according to Edwards, and I agree with him, that King Saul was a wicked man. Yet the Holy Spirit came upon him, and King Saul himself prophesied by a gift of the Holy Spirit. He had the charismatic gift of prophecy. And then Edward said, look at Judas in the New Testament. From all the indications we have in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit also did miracles through Judas as well as through the, through the other 11. Casting out demons probably. We don't know about prophecy, but probably doing miracles through Judas as well as the other 11. Charismatic gifts, gift of miracles. But Judas was a wicked man. And Jesus himself said it would be better if he had never been born. So Edward says, look, simply because someone has truly charismatic gifts and the Holy Spirit truly uses that person by a gift from the Holy Spirit to help others doesn't mean they're even born again. So Edwards talks about the infinite, the possession of the Holy Spirit is infinitely better than having a charismatic gift. Now, Shavuot, Shavuot, as you know, and you have probably heard, you know, Pastor David preach on Shavuot, that uh, for Jews, this is the giving of the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. And rabbis taught that when the law was given, there were, there were, sparks of fire all over the top um, of the heads of the elders on top of Mount Sinai at the same time, just like the fire, the tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples on Pentecost in the New Testament, which shows the conjunction of word and spirit that Edward said is absolutely essential, that in the balanced Christian life, there's always word balancing spirit, spirit balancing word. So for Edwards, God works revival through the Spirit and the Word always working together. And the Spirit without the Word, according to Edwards, creates fanaticism where we become charismaniacs, um, do all sorts of crazy things that are unbiblical. And also the Spirit without the Word can, can lead to antinomianism, which is very common in churches back in the United States, probably not at all in your churches where you're from. 
but a lot of churches back in the United States are antinomian. Now, what does that mean? Anti means against, and nomos is the Greek word for law. So against the law. And this is the Christian who says, hey, I got the Holy Spirit. And after all, didn't Jesus come to do away with the law? And hopefully you learn here in Christ Church, no, that's not true. But there are many Christians who think, uh, in the United States, probably nowhere else, that, that um, we, we don't have to pay any attention to the law. That's legalism. And I got the Spirit. And I can just follow the Spirit, and the Spirit often leads me to do all sorts of things that the Bible would say are sin. And they say, oh, oh, oh don't be so legalistic. That's antinomianism. Uh, where it doesn't matter, you know, I can live like the devil, but, but Jesus is going for, to forgive me because, after all, that's his job. Or more and more, the heresy in the church, which Edwards also fought, of universalism, universal salvation, that everyone is going to be saved eventually, that if there's a hell, it's only temporary, and most universalists say there is no hell at all. Edwards fought that in the 18th century, and it's a big problem in the churches today, including evangelical churches. Uh, Universalism is becoming more and more widespread. And that's another example of the spirit without the word, because if you read the word, it's very clear. Uh, As Jonathan Edwards famously taught, that God is not only a God of love, but he's also a God of holiness and a God of judgment. And any church or any theologian or any preacher who, who simply talks love, God's love, God's love, God's love all the time without God's holiness and without God's law and without God's judgment, well, it's not, it is no longer the love of God. Or it's the love of a God, but it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God, it's not the true God who is the God of Israel. It's some other God. It, it is no longer the true Jesus. It's some other Jesus. It is no longer the true gospel, it's some other gospel. And, and Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians eleven four 4, he, uh, he talks about a different gospel, and he says another Jesus and another spirit. So false preachers back then, in Paul's day, were talking about Jesus. They were using the word Jesus, they were using the word gospel, and... They were using the word spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit, Paul says, and it wasn't the Jesus of the New Testament. It was some other Jesus, and it wasn't the gospel of the true God. It was some other gospel. Same thing today, and Edwards would say, as he said back in the 18th century, when, when he faced the same heresies, both antinomianism and universalism, that this is the, the, these are perfect examples of the spirit without the law. And Shavuot, teaches us that we know the true God who is the God of Israel only when there's a balance between God's law and God's spirit. Sure, questions? Sir. Oh, revivals um, between Augustine and the Reformation. Uh, Many, I mean, uh, you know, the great flowering of theology in the 13th century that was headed by Thomas Aquinas, I'd say that was a revival. Uh, but, you know, uh, not that you only have revivals with great theologians, but often a revival uh, produces good theology. You know, the, 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 the um, you know, St. Francis, 
and the same and the Franciscan movement was a revival, certainly. Saint Bonaventure was a great preacher, a legendary preacher, and and that started a revival of its own. Now, now I was uh, raised as a Roman Catholic, but then I went into my my evangelical phase where I hated all things Catholic. And I thought God probably didn't do much of anything. You know, the gospel lost out about 100 AD and never resurfaced until 1517. And I used to have a massive prejudice against the medievals, you know, medieval period, say after Augustine. And then I went to grad school and started reading church history and, and historical theology. And I was just amazed. I was blown away by the beauty and the many revivals of the church uh, and the monastic movements, you know, in theology throughout the Middle Ages. There's much, much beauty there, uh, uh, in my opinion. Sir? So the question is, uh, this man was interested in what I said about grace being the person of the Holy Spirit and which is in contrast to most evangelical uh, uh, understanding that grace is simply the gift of forgiveness in, in regeneration when you become a Christian. Or I would say that grace is something that God gives to you in discrete quantities at distinct times. Now, I would say both of those teachings are true, but they're so incomplete. They're so incomplete. Yes, uh, when we are born again and we are converted, uh, which, by the way, for Edwards, a conversion is not the same thing as being born again. And I can talk about that if you want to. But yes, that definitely is a work of grace. But evangelicals and Protestants, and particularly Lutherans, tend to, tend, tend to limit grace to that one experience that at the beginning of your Christian life where, where you see that you're a sinner and God has forgiven you because of, of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Or that grace comes to you occasionally as this thing to help you get through your problems. Well, both of those things are true, but, but for Edwards, they are so incomplete. And they tend to reduce grace to a thing either God's act of forgiveness at regeneration, at conversion, or uh, this thing that comes to me from time to time to help me through a problem. Rather than, as Edwards taught, grace is simply the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. Grace is a person. And grace is throughout the Christian life, not only at regeneration and conversion, but also through all your lifelong history of becoming more holy, sanctification. Now, now your real question is, uh, how much of this is understood in the evangelical world? Um, I, I would say not much, and I would, uh, but Edwards, you know, you know, the last 60 years, there has been an explosion of interest in Jonathan Edwards uh, all over the world. You know, there, 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 there are Jonathan Edwards centers in Asia, in, in Korea, and, and, and in Japan, in South Africa, and um, uh, I believe in Egypt, uh, many different countries in Europe, all over the United States, South America. 
So there's increasing interest in Edwards as a great, as one of the world's greatest theologians all over the world now. Now, that being said, not, you know, uh, not everyone who knows Edwards knows this about his understanding of grace because you have to go deep into his works to find this. Um, so I'll stop there. I could go on, but uh, sir, back there. Um, the question is to exp talk more, a little bit more about antinomianism and... Um, uh, you know, a rejection of the law and how that is reconcilable with Hebrews 8.13, which um, says, talks about the covenant is in the process of, if you look at the Greek, passing away. Well, if you look at he Hebrews 8.13, which is a huge stumbling block for many, it's referring to the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant. But it's typically interpreted as referring to the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with the Jewish people through Abraham. And thus, uh, the, the, the traditional interpretation has been since the fourth century that because of Hebrews 8.13 and other uh, uh, um, teachings principally of Paul, which I would say are gross misunderstandings of Paul, that in 30 AD or 33 AD, depending on how you date the death and resurrection of Jesus, God transferred the, the, the Abrahamic covenant with the Jewish people. He took it away from the Jewish people because the majority of Jews uh, did not accept Jesus as Messiah and transferred the Abrahamic covenant to the Gentile church. You know, it's also, um, that's called replacement theology. He replaced his covenant with the Jews with uh, a new covenant, and that's what the new covenant is, um, with the Gentile church. Now, that's a gross misunderstanding of Paul, and it's also a gross misunderstanding of Jesus, and it's a gross misunderstanding of the covenant. Uh, as I said, he, Hebrews 8.13 is talking about the Mosaic Covenant, which the author of Hebrews was apparently recognizing that the temple was about to fall. I, I mean, I think it, it, it was written before 70 AD. There are internal clues, I think. Uh, and, and he was anticipating that, that, that the present Mosaic dispensation with the temple and the animal sacrifices is on its way out. And, and he was comparing it now to the heavenly priesthood of Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father. But that, that's the Mosaic Covenant, not the Abrahamic Covenant, not get God's covenant with the Jewish people. And in either event, no matter how you interpret Hebrews 8.13, uh, Paul is very clear that the law is still in place for Christians. Uh, in Romans 3 and Romans 7, he uh, em emphasizes this, uh, that, that uh, he says the law is, is holy, righteous, and good. He also says in Romans, he says, does this mean that, that the law is done away with? Meganoita in Greek, which, which is stronger than no way Jose. Um, he says, we uphold the law. Um, you know, Jesus himself in, in Matthew 5, 17 and following says, I have not come uh, to abolish the law of the prophets, 
Now, why is Jesus saying this? Because apparently some people thought back then that, that he had come to abolish the law and the prophets. And especially when Matthew was writing it a few decades later, uh, this apparently was the accusation of some that, that Jesus had come to abolish the law, law, the, the law and the prophets. He says, no, I haven't. I have come to fulfill the law, to uphold the law, to, 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 to give the true uh, inner spiritual meaning to the law. And, you know, the rabbis had, had taught that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will give his understanding of the law, which will be called mm, the Messiah's law or uh, the Messiah's Torah. So when Paul refers to the law of Christ, he's really saying the Torah of the Messiah, he's probably referring to the same thing. So uh, it's a gross misreading of Paul to think that he threw out the law, and they also base it on Romans 10.4, where it says, where Paul says, Christ is the telos of the law, and typically in English that's translated the end of the law. Well, telos doesn't mean end as in finish, but end as in the goal. I mean, the goal of the law, as Paul, as Paul says elsewhere, is to lead us to the Messiah. Not to do away with the law, but to lead us... Um, to the Messiah's and his interpretation of Torah. So antinomianism, it's a gross misunderstanding of Paul. It's a gross misunderstanding of Jesus that, that Jesus came to do away with the law or that Christians are not, un, um, um, uh, are not to learn from every jot and tittle. And Jesus says that in, in Matthew 5, that his disciples are to learn f- from every uh, and literally in the Greek, from every iota, which is the smallest letter in the, in the Greek alphabet, and horn, karion, horn, the smallest stroke of the pen in, in the Hebrew alphabet of the law. That means every stroke of the pen, for example, in Leviticus, that we are to learn from it. Uh, do we as Gentiles still practice everything in Leviticus? No, because we're not Jews. But Still, we are to learn something from, say, the laws of, of Kashrut. And certainly, from all that the God of Israel taught us in the whole Old Testament about um, the moral life, that is not to be overthrown, as most of um, liberal Christianity says, particularly when it comes to sexuality and marriage. So that, that, that's a long answer to your question. Uh, I saw another hand here. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what did Jonathan Edwards under- mean by revival, and what did he get from the Puritans on revival? Jonathan Edwards meant by revival, and by the way, he wrote about three major treatises on revival. Uh, he meant a work of the Spirit of God in history that wakes up a, uh, a sleeping or dead church and brings many people from outside the church into the church and makes them love the Word of God, makes them love God and their neighbor, uh, makes them love the church and get involved in the church, and leads to a life of holiness, a life of holiness. That's what's often neglected in evangelical circles today, a life of holiness, which which the Bible calls sanctification. Um, Now, the Puritans and Edwards, Edwards was not a Puritan. He's often said to be a Puritan. He wasn't a Puritan. 
He, he was different in many ways from, from the Puritans. And generally, the Puritans didn't have these kinds of revivals, and they didn't believe so much in the concept of revival. And, and that's one way in, uh, uh, in which Edwards was different from the Puritans. Now, the Puritans definitely believed in the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would come to revive a church, yes. But, but not in, 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 in a movement in history so much. Uh, uh, the kind of, of uh, spiritual awakening that Edwards talked about. Now, Ed, Edwards distinguished between a biblical revival and a simple um, temporary uh, work of the Holy Spirit to bring a congregation or a society alive, which could be God's way to prepare people for judgment. So he said, oftentimes, revival leads to judgment. So, for example, in Nineveh, God woke the Ninevites up through Jonah, but then we're not sure how many generations later he, he brought final judgment down upon Nineveh. But, but he was trying to prepare the Ninevites for judgment. So, too, he said, in, in the first century, uh, it was not the only reason for the revival of the rise of the Holy Church, but it was also a warning of coming judgment which, which, which came in uh, the Jewish wars of 66 to 70. So revival is not always a, a sign that God is pleased. It's sometimes uh, a sign of the opposite. Uh, it can be a sign that judgment is coming upon our society. And Jonathan, all, Ed, 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 uh, um, Jonathan Edwards, now, now I'm a stutterer, and, and, and you'll notice I stutter from time to time. Uh, in fact, I published a book a few years ago called Famous Stutterers, 12, 12 Famous Stutterers from Moses, who was a stutterer, to um, uh, Marilyn Monroe, who was also a terrible stutterer, terrible stutterer, and Winston Churchill. I got a chapter on him. So, um, oh, where was I? I just lost my, yes, a revival and, uh, sign, and signs of judgment. Hmm, lost my thought. Oh, Edwards was a leader of several revivals, and he was the uh, one, one of the two most famous uh, leaders of the Great Awakening. Now, he, he was the theologian of the Awakening. He was also a minor preacher of the Awakening. George Whitfield was the much greater preacher of the Awakening, but there were many other um, Great Awakening um, preachers. Now, now, the Great Awakening, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, was 1740 to 1742, roughly, and this was a massive revival that swept up and down the 13 colonies from all the way up to Maine in the north, all the way down, down to Georgia in the south, and changed America forever after. And historians generally agree that there had not been a great awakening. There never would have been an American Revolution. And, I mean, everyone concedes, even those who hate America, that, that the American Revolution... Uh, changed the course of history. And so Edwards, if now he died in 1758, before the, the revolution of consciousness that started in 1760, that led to 1776. So Edwards didn't know about it, but Edwards would have said, I am certain, if he had lived through the 
the revolution as John Wesley did and John Wesley was was uh, born about the same time and they knew of each other and John Wesley was deeply influenced by Edwards by the way Edwards would have said that the American that the American Revolution is a vindication of his philosophy of history that God moves history through the history of revival well uh, I don't want to Oh, yes. I, I was hoping somebody would ask, Carol. Thank you. So Edward said, uh, conversion is not always this, is, 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 uh, often happens at a different point in time than regeneration. And here he, he, he uh, vindicates those who believe in infant baptism. He believed in infant baptism. He practiced infant baptism. And he said that for the elect, infants can be regenerated and through baptism. He said, look at John the Baptist in the womb. When, when he was still in his mother's tummy, John the Baptist was quickened by the Holy Spirit. He was regenerated. But he didn't convert to self-conscious following the Messiah, who, was, who happened to be his cousin, un until about 30 years later, when Jesus began his public ministry. He said, look at Cornelius, and here he, he, um, he agreed with Calvin that before Peter came and told Cornelius about Jesus and the gospel, Cornelius was already regenerated since the angel came and said, your, um, your, your alms and your prayers have ascended on high, and both of them agreed, uh, as almost all the fathers did, that that, that showed that Cornelius was already regenerated, but he hadn't self-consciously converted to following Jesus because he'd never heard of Jesus until Peter told him about this, this Jesus who lived this kind of life. So, so Edwards believed that actually conversion can follow on regeneration by years. And frankly, um, Edwards has converted me to that belief. And I, and I see it all the time in people's lives, that you know the Holy Spirit has come to them, and they're following, and frankly, I see it a lot in, in, in many of my non-Messianic Jewish friends. They love the God of Israel, and they want, they give their lives to the God of Israel. But now they might have heard with their ears something about Jesus, but as soon as they hear the word Jesus or gospel or church, they start smelling the fumes of Auschwitz and they think about their relatives. And, and every Jew I know has relatives who were killed in their mind by Christians who went to church on Sunday morning and killed Jews on Monday. Now, a lot of us would say, well, they weren't true Christians. Who knows? God only knows. But I believe that when the Holy Spirit reveals to them who, who Jesus is, they will convert because they really love the God of Israel who is the Father of Jesus Christ. And I, I, and I see in my own life. Now, now, I was raised a Roman Catholic. I, I was baptized after a few weeks. And all my childhood as a Roman Catholic boy, and I went to a Jesuit high school in New York City, I had a love for God, but I didn't really know who Jesus was. Uh, I really didn't. And I had a fear of God. And I'm very glad I had a fear of God. The, the Roman Catholic Church, I think, by the Holy Spirit, taught me a deep fear of God.
uh, that kept me out of a lot of things that would have destroyed my life back when I was a teenager. And, uh, and I never converted to a self-conscious following of Jesus until I was 18. But I believe I was regenerate all those years in, and, and the Holy Spirit was leading me. So um, I think Edwards is right on this, and I think there's plenty of biblical evidence. And once you're open to this and you start, you know, reading the Bible for the umpteenth time, you start to see this, in, uh, especially in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, I think. So thank you for your attention. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.